We've been working through Matthew slowly. This is week 25, and we are in chapter 23. Ordinarily, you know, I race through books, but I decided we needed to spend a lot of time on Matthew because we're in a time in society where understanding who should be our leader is of essential importance. And one of the biggest conflicts that we tend to face is that we are aligning ourselves with different earthly leaders when our king is the one who wears a crown of thorns. Our king is the one who allows himself to be captured and crucified. Our king is the one who constantly tells us that the losers are the ones he favors, that the poor in spirit are to be blessed. And our king is the one who doesn't just simply jump on your bandwagon and support all of your needs in all of your circumstances. You don't have a bully who's on your side when it comes to Jesus. You have the person who's constantly advocating for the weak and the broken. And so the question is, do you want to follow a king like that? Do you want to follow a king who is advocating the cause of the broken, or do you want to follow a king who's advocating the cause of you? It's a big challenge. It's the biggest challenge in all of our lives, and Jesus brings that to the surface as we read about him in Matthew. I believe Matthew is trying to communicate to us that Jesus is the king better than all other kings. He's the teacher better than Moses. He's the priest better than all the other priests. And this one who is better than everything that came before him and better than anything that will come after him is the one who says, love your neighbor as yourself. Take up your cross daily and follow me. And so today, we're going to dig into chapter 23, but when we get into chapter 23, what we find is that Jesus is beginning to go on a rant. Now, every now and then, you have heard me rant. Some of you have heard me rant. I used to pretend that I was getting on a soapbox, and some of you liked that, and then other times I've ranted, and it has gone uh, not so well. But Jesus is on a rant right now. In chapter 23, he is just going to let the truth fly, and This is the same Jesus who a couple chapters ago went into the temple and got a whip and turned over tables and was like, all of you guys need to get out of here because of your racism is keeping out the Gentiles. And so he was super upset with what was going on in the temple. And now he's still just as upset, but he's targeting his words. Remember, this is just a few days before Jesus himself is going to go to the cross. And so Jesus is making every last word count. And in chapter 23, we're going to find out that Jesus hates bad religion. Now, before we dig into it too closely, though, I want to just acknowledge to you that not all religion is bad. And so we're going to start with kind of a a baseline definition for what I'm using the word religion to mean. And so this is not a Webster's definition or anything. This is my working definition for us today. Religion is the practice that flows from a spiritual worldview. Religion is not the worldview itself. Religion is not the practice by itself. Religion is when you have a spiritual worldview and from that flows behaviors, the practices that you do. So some of them might be traditions, some of them might be moral behaviors. It's just religion is this whole encompassing thing. The reason I'm using that term and the reason I want to let you know that religion is not always bad is that this word, religion, shows up in the Bible in a way that you might not have seen before. It's from the book of James. I'm going to put it up here. James was Jesus' half-brother, remember. Jesus' half-brother. Mary and Joseph had children after Jesus was born, and so this is James, one of those children. And James writes, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. James, when he is writing his letter, he wants to make sure that you know not all religion is bad. There's some religion that is very good, some religion that could be called pure, and some religion that could be called faultless. And the pure and faultless religion is really just two things, looking after the poor and oppressed and keeping yourself pure. Two things, personal purity and a kind of social activism of looking after the the needs of the poor and the oppressed. Those are the only two things that qualify underneath this 
term of good religion. Now, the reason I'm bringing it up is that James has only written what he wrote about religion because he got it from his brother. Jesus said it first. We saw it last week. I'm going to put it up on the screen too because you got to see the Jesus religion. The Jesus religion is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Kind of a, a purity of self, you know? Loving God in purity, you know? And this is the first and greatest commandment. He says the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. James wasn't writing something new. James was just paraphrasing something that Jesus had already said. And Jesus is saying there is one kind of religion that works. And he means the entire Old Testament, all the law, all the prophets, all of that stuff in the law and the prophets is really hanging on two things. So there's only one kind of religion that really honors God. There's only one kind of religion that's true. And that religion is one being in a pure relationship with God. I love God with everything that I am. And number two, loving my neighbor as myself, even if my neighbor is poor, downtrodden, oppressed, or something along those lines. And so Jesus says, here is the baseline fundamental religion. The reason I'm setting this up is what you're about to see in chapter 23 is Jesus, on the heels of that statement, on the heels of his statement about the greatest command that has ever been given, on the heels of that, Jesus is now turning towards the religious leaders of his day. And he's going to let them have it because the religion they have been practicing is terrible. Particularly, he's going to start by attacking their leaders. And he's going to say that their leaders are bad leaders. And there are three marks of a bad religious leader. So here we go. We're going to pick it up uh, right at the beginning of 23. It says this. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. Remember the Pharisees are a group of people who were self-proclaimed leaders. They didn't have any official authority. They were just self-proclaimed leaders because they had studied the scripture and they were advocates for everybody obeying the Old Testament scriptures rigidly. I mean, all the details that they could possibly think because they believed that the Messiah was going to show up and be on their side if they were good enough if they just got all of their ducks lined up properly. Okay, so here we go. He's talking to the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, or they're pretending to be teachers teaching from Moses' documents. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you, because if they're telling you something that Moses already told you, then go ahead and do it, right? Because they're just repeating what Moses said. But do not do what they do. For they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy loads, heavy, cumbersome loads, and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Jesus is giving us three marks of a bad religious leader. If you see a person with these three characteristics, you have probably seen someone who is a bad leader to follow. And Jesus says specifically, do not do what they do. Even if they're telling you to do something that's right, you might do what they're telling you to do because Moses already said it anyway, but just don't do what they do. And he gives us three things. Number one, they don't practice what they preach. If you find a leader who doesn't practice what they preach, you have found a bad leader, especially a bad religious leader. Don't do what they do. Number two, Jesus says they put burdens on others but offer no assistance. They put burdens on people but don't do anything to help them carry those burdens. If you've ever been to a church, and if you've ever heard me do it, if you've ever been to a church where it was like the pastor just always told you what you were supposed to do, and it was just like every sermon was just a long to-do list, and every single time you went to that church, you just got more and more and more reasons to feel guilty about yourself. If you've ever experienced that, if I've ever done that for you, then I'm apologizing because the goal of any pastor or teacher is not to teach people why they should feel guilty but to help people understand what power God is giving them to overcome those weaknesses. But these guys aren't doing that. Jesus says they're putting burdens on people, but they're not doing anything to help them. And then the third thing that Jesus mentions is actually in the next few verses. Verse 5 says this. 
Well, I'll give you the blanks first. They live for earthly rewards. Here it is in verse 5. Jesus says, everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels of their garments long. Two things. A phylactery is the little brown box that sometimes you will see an Orthodox Jewish man wearing on his forehead or sometimes wrapped around his arm, his right arm. A phylactery is just a tiny little box that has some passage of Scripture in it. Usually, it's the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind, and all your strength. It's usually that passage in the little box that's on their right hand or on their forehead. Now, here's the thing. If you want to be discreet, you can have a small box. If you want to be noticed, you can have a big box. And the bigger your box, the more laws you can put in that box, and the more you can testify to the people around you that look at you. You're carrying all the laws. You could just strap an entire Bible to your forehead and walk around with that, and that's effectively what these people were doing back in Jesus' day. He says they're making large phylacteries. And the tassels, which was a command from God in the Old Testament that the people should have tassels on their garments. I don't exactly know why God said that, but he had it as one of his rules. But they're going all out. They're like, well, if I'm going to have a tassel, I'm going to have the longest tassel in town. You know, you better believe I'm going to follow God more than you. And so here it is, tassels. And (laughs) it's not just that. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. Oh, how great. What earthly rewards. But, Jesus says, you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. When I first um, started in the job of pastor, one of the things that I tried to make clear to people is that I didn't want them to call me pastor. I wanted them to just call me Jeff. And I thought that by doing that, I was following passages like this. You shouldn't call anyone with any sort of title, you know, something along those lines. And so I, that's what I thought I was doing. And, and then later on, um, as I was ministering to people from a variety of different cultural contexts, I met some people who were in the African-American context, and they refer to their pastor not by Pastor James or Pastor Will. They just call him Pastor as his first name. His, his name is just pastor. And so they will refer, anytime they're talking to someone in their church, they'll just say, pastor told me this, pastor told me that. And that's just how they, how they talk. It's the title that has encompassed the person. And then in uh, other contexts, I knew a lot of people from India when we were in Chicago. And in India, the culture is really strong with honorifics, uh, titles that display honor. And so they wanted to give me honor titles. And if I said, call me Jeff, they would refuse. They'd be like, no, I'm calling you Pastor Jeff. That's just how it's going to work. And then I met another pastor friend of mine who was like, we live in a society that is losing a sense of honor. We're not using terms like Mr. and Mrs. We're not using terms like sir or ma'am. Our society is losing honor. And so if we can help people develop a sense of honor, then we should do that. And so I gave in and I started going by Pastor Jeff in any official context. And so usually when someone on stage refers to me, they refer to me as Pastor Jeff. But if you and I are talking in some other context, I don't expect you to call me Pastor Jeff to my face or anything along those lines. But I read this passage this last week and I was like, okay, so wait a minute. Am I ever supposed to have a title? And here's where I'm settling down with this for me personally. I think as long as pastor refers to my job, it helps people understand what I do. So if you were ever to refer to someone as painter Joe or nurse someone, if you ever wanted to refer to someone using their job, you can use pastor as my job. And so if I'm talking to someone and it's important for me to identify my job with them, then pastor would be the appropriate one. Or if there's a visitor to this church, they probably want to know who the guy who's going to be teaching is. And so you might want to refer to me as pastor Jeff. But 
and in the context of my job, that's great. But if it's ever anything that creates a sense of division between us, it should not be there. Because see, what Jesus is saying here is not that the word rabbi is a bad word or the word father is a bad word or any of these other things. What Jesus is saying here is that no one on earth should have the authority of God in your life. Jesus is your only teacher. God is your only father. No one on earth should have that same kind of authority in your life. And so be extremely cautious with how you use those words. But then also, you, as a human being, don't ever need to aspire to such titles. Let me show you a really interesting passage from 2 Peter. It says this, Peter is writing and he says, Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. Now, I'd love to preach about the context of this verse because the context is really important, but the context has nothing to do with this point that I'm making right now. Because the point I'm making right now is how does Peter talk about Paul? Peter is trying to make a point that Paul has written something really, really, really smart. Peter's trying to make a point that Paul has the Spirit of God giving him wisdom to teach him something interesting. And so Paul has written something really important. And Peter, the number one of all the apostles, is now trying to give honor and recognition to Paul. And he calls Paul our dear brother. He doesn't call Paul my brother because, you know, Peter and Paul, they're like spiritual brothers and all these other people are somehow below them in some way. No, he uses the word our to include everybody, our brother. See, Jesus hates it when religion divides people into hierarchies and camps. Jesus hates it. When there is anything that gets in the way of loving one another as yourself. And so he says to his followers, I don't want you to ever look at another person like their God in your life, and I don't ever want you to try to be a significant person for someone else. Just serve people. That's what makes you great in my kingdom. And so Jesus says those kinds of leaders who don't get this right, don't follow them. Don't do what they do. But now, now is when Jesus really lets loose. He's about to use a kind of bad word, and he's going to use it seven times. It's the word woe. Now, you and I don't use the word woe in any sort of bad way. Uh, We don't use the word woe like Jesus used the word woe. We use the word woe to refer to someone who's moving too fast. Whoa, buddy. And that's with an H on the end, you know? Or we'll use the word woe when we're joking about something being so terrible in our lives. Woe is me. Jesus is using the word woe almost equivalent to the word damn, almost equivalent to the word, they should be damned to hell. He is saying woe to a bunch of people for how they have been behaving in their religion. And he is going to say that these people are deserving of incredible torment because of the religion they have been practicing. And Jesus is going to give us seven marks of bad religion. Here we go. We're going to pick it up in uh, verse, let's see, verse where are we? 13. Jesus says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. The first mark of a bad religion is religion that controls others. Religion that controls others. There are two words there that I've underlined. And I want to emphasize each of them separately. First of all, there's the religion that is focused on the other. I'm not focused on myself in this religion. I'm not worried about myself, nor am I finding the joy for myself. I'm focused on others. My whole attention in this religion is to worry about others and what other people are doing. Jesus says, you don't enter into the kingdom of God. Like, it's right here. You have every opportunity to enter into the joy of the fellowship of of being with God. I mean, that's that's an amazing thing. The Pharisees, you guys could enter in, but you're not. 
So the first aspect of this religion that's controlling others is the aspect that says I'm focusing on others and not myself. But then there's that second piece of trying to control the other person, trying to control the other people. Man, as a pastor, I got to admit to you that uh, sometimes I really, really wish I could control you. Um, There are some times when I have counseled a person and I have given them advice and I've told them the exact right thing to do in their circumstance based on the teaching from Scripture. And then they leave and they go do what they were going to do anyway. And then everything breaks loose in their family life and they lose all kinds of uh, things in their life and all kinds of problems are coming upon them. And everything in me wants to go back to them and say, I told you so. But of course, that wouldn't be loving them as myself. I wouldn't want someone to just show up and say, I told you so. And so I go back to them when I can, and I bring the text of Scripture to them, and I try to share grace with them. And then I try to allow them to feel forgiven, but then they won't forgive themselves. And every time I see a person who is living a life that is outside what God's will for them is, I just wish I could push a button and control them and say, let's get you back in line with what the Bible says because it's happier on this side of the line. It's better on this side of the line. Sometimes I'm jealous of those religions like Mormonism where the teachers just basically tell them, you don't get to heaven unless you give money to this church. You don't get to heaven unless you do the things we're telling you to do with your family. And so, yeah, they've got nice families because they're living under the threat of hell. That, uh, you know, if they, if they don't do this thing, you know, they're going to they're gonna burn forever. And so sometimes I just kind of am jealous of the Mormons because they've got that leverage over the people. But the truth of the matter is, Jesus calls that bad religion. Any religion where, that gives you the ability or excuse to try to control others is bad religion. At this point, I want to let you know, perhaps I've given you enough of a hint of what's going to happen here today, that if you know anyone in your life who is um, someone who hates Christians because they hate hypocrites, you know, someone in your life who has said, I'm never going to church because church is filled with hypocrites. If you know someone in your life who just doesn't like organized religion, by the way, I tell people all the time, we're pretty disorganized around here, but uh, if, you, if you ever find someone who just doesn't like organized religion, if you know someone in your life, I'm going to give you permission right now to take your phone and text them and tell them, hey, listen, you might want to tune into uh, what's happening here at my church because um, my pastor's going off about the hypocrites in the world and he's showing us how Jesus hates the hypocrites and how Jesus hates the religion that produces the hypocrites. I mean, some people in your life might need to know this. And so whether it's right now at this moment or, you know, at home or, you know, later on this week or something, that might be, be helpful. But see, Jesus is saying that any religion that allows you that, to feel like you can or should control others, that's bad religion. The second mark of a bad religion is this, religion that uses resources for evil. Now, a lot of us are like, well, we don't... When, when does the church ever use its resources for evil? Well, let me read what Jesus says first here in verse 14. He says, uh, excuse me, 15. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you've succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. See, Jesus used the word hell right there. I mean, Anyway, so here's the deal. Jesus says to the Pharisees that they are willing to go to great lengths, to travel great distances, to expend great sums of money, because travel wasn't cheap back then, to expend great sums of money to find another person who could be a convert to their way of thinking, and then they work on that person until that person becomes just as evil as they are. And Jesus is like, that's so wrong. Now, I'm not going to point any fingers at the churches that are spending their money improperly. Uh, I, I don't have all the details on all the motivations of other churches and how they use their resources. I'm going to tell you that next week, we're going to have a missionary here visiting us, a missionary couple that I just discovered not too long ago. We've got some family friends in common, and uh, they reached out to me, and I'm like, that sounds cool. Anyway, quick note, there are missionaries all around the world 
who are, are benefiting from a great deal of resources from Christians and Christian churches. And a lot of them are doing great things, serving people where they are. And so the resources of the church are supporting them, serving people where they are. But there's a problem. The people who love to serve people are the people who don't love to toot their own horns. And so since the people who love to serve people, the people who are doing the service thing right, don't love to promote themselves, the churches here in this country have a hard time knowing which ministry and which missionary to support because the ones that are doing a lot of the most good are the least likely to tell you about it. So the missionary family that's coming here next week is a missionary family whose, whose entire purpose is to go over into Europe and find missionaries who don't want to toot their own horn, and then to toot the horn for them. And so they're going to be, they're like high quality production video type people, and they're going to serve the missionaries who are serving the people. It's an interesting idea. I want you to hear about it, and so they're going to be here next week. But Jesus would say anyone who's using resources for evil and finding an excuse for that in their religion That's a bad religion. Let's move on. The next one Jesus says is that religion that plays the loophole game, the religion that plays the loophole game is a bad religion. Look at it with me here in verse 16. He says, Woe to you, blind guides. You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by that oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gift on the altar is bound by that oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And anyone who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this, but what Jesus is doing here is he's saying, hey, listen, religion has this tendency to create this system of loopholes where there's some things you can do and some things you can't do. There are some ways you can swear that are acceptable and some ways that you swear that are not acceptable. The first time I ever said the yes word was in church. Sunday school to be exact. I was sitting there at a table with some of my friends. And uh, my dad was the pastor of the church, so anything I did was well noticed by the teachers. And so I was sitting there with my friends, and we were working on a coloring page. And as we were working on the coloring page, one of my friends made some comment. I don't know why. I think we might have been doing something with Joseph and his Technicolor uh, coat, you know. Um, and, And to be joking, we might write the word shirt on our paper. And so one of us, I don't remember which one of us it was, wrote the word shirt on our paper and accidentally left out the R. And, the, and my friend looks at it and he's like, oh my goodness, you wrote a bad word on your paper. And I was like, what? And I looked at it. I was like, that's not a bad word. And then I just said it out loud. I was like, that is not a bad word. And the teacher disagreed with me. And she came, she came over to me, and I was like, and I said it again. I was like, that's not about it. She said, yes, it is. Don't say it again. See, I had a lot of rules in my family about what words were good words and what words were bad words. And I knew that there were various words for human excrement that were allowed, but my parents never told me any of the words that crossed the PG-13 tier of words. And so, or PG tier of words. And so, at the time, I, I knew about some of those words. I, and then in my family, also, there, there were the variety of D words. I was allowed to say darn. I was not allowed to say dang. And then anything else above that was just completely out of the question. And so, as a result, I developed for myself a whole wide variety of comedic swear words that would allow me to say things that I knew were swearing that other people might find funny. Phrases like, what the monkey, are one of my favorites. Or um, FRAP, which was the abbreviation for French apple pie at the Baker Square where I worked. It's a, there are a couple really great swear words that I have come up with, but Jesus' point is this. Any religion that lets you 
be mean to someone or deceive someone because you simply used a different word is a bad religion. It's not how you swear that matters. It's whether you are being loving that matters. The swearing bit is just completely neither here nor there. Okay, so any religion that allows you to be mean to someone or that allows you to deceive someone by simply going through some loophole, that's a bad religion. Uh, Let's move on. The next mark of a bad religion, Jesus says, is religion that reverses priorities. Religion that reverses priorities. Every time I think about priorities, I think about that Harry Potter scene in uh, the first movie where Hermione Granger is more worried about getting expelled than she is about getting killed, and the other kids are like, she needs to change her priorities. Anyway, that happens in religion all the time. We worry about the wrong things, pay attention to the wrong things. Here it is in verse 23. It says, woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. I frequently use this passage to reiterate the importance of tithing because Jesus says you should have done both. You should have done the tithing thing and also done the justice thing. But I don't want to get into the the morass of you feeling like I am putting those two things on the same plane. Jesus doesn't put them on the same plane. Issues of justice and mercy and faithfulness are so much more important than how much of your dill you tithe or keep. Justice and mercy and faithfulness, these things, Jesus says, these are the big picture items, and you've been spending all your time on the little picture items. When I was a kid, my mom would tell me to clean my bedroom, and I would pick up the first thing that I saw, and I would go to my drawer to put it in the drawer, and I would open the drawer and realize that there was no logical place in the drawer for the thing that I had just picked up off the floor. It's one of the reasons why it was on the floor. And so anyway, I'm like, where does this go? And so I take the drawer out of my desk, and I had one of these drawers that was like a filing cabinet drawer, but it didn't have files in it. It just had stuff. So I took the drawer out of my desk, would dump the entire thing out onto the top of my bed, and then spend the next hour or two sorting and organizing and getting everything put back into the drawer in such a perfect way that this new item could also fit into the drawer as well. And my mom would come in about halfway through the process, realize that nothing on the floor had changed one tiny bit, and now there's an empty drawer and a pile of junk on my bed, and she has to wonder, where are my priorities? And we do the stupid thing like that with religion all the time. We're like, well, this doesn't make sense to me, so I'm just going to construct this whole other thing, and I'll focus over on that one because this other thing is too hard. I can't answer these questions. I can't figure this thing out. Justice, mercy, and faithfulness, those things are difficult. But you know what? Shaving off 10% of my cumin and giving that to the temple for spice, that's easy. And Jesus says, any religion that lets you get your priorities out of whack like that is a bad religion. There are a couple more, three more, and Jesus gets more intense with these. The next one is religion that goes from the outside in. Religion that goes from the outside in. See what he says about that here in verse 25. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee. First, clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. See, that's the real reason I did my drawers first. Because Jesus wants me to work on the inside of things first. 
not the outside. No, that's not the point. The point is that Jesus is saying, listen, there are some religions, there are some religions that tell you to focus on what's on the outside of a person, what the person is doing, what the person looks like. There are some religions that allow you to focus on the exterior stuff. And if you spend all your time on the exterior stuff, the interior stuff will never change. It will always be greed. It will always be self-indulgence. And there are still many, many, many people today who show up at church on a weekly basis but Monday through Saturday, it's greed. And even on Sunday morning, it's self-indulgence because we're just there because something about it made us feel good. And Jesus's point is no, any religion that works from the outside in is a bad religion. What you need to do is work on the inside and then the outside will take care of itself. Good religion is working on the inside where I have to have a relationship with God and where I'm loving my neighbor as myself. The religions that work from the outside in are bad religions. Two more. Religion that lets you lie to others is a bad religion. Take a look at what Jesus says here. Woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. It sounds like the cup and dish thing he just said, but the cup and dish thing was focusing on which one do you clean. This one doesn't talk about clean. This one doesn't talk about cleaning at all. This one just talks about who you are. You are a person who on the outside looks righteous, but on the inside, you are disgusting, Jesus is saying to these people. Just this last week, I learned that um, one arm of our church network, we're we're in a network of churches called Converge. Uh, It's the network of churches that helped us have some money to start this church 15 years ago. And uh, in this network of churches... We also participate financially in a couple ways. The loan for this building and the other two buildings is managed by a company called the Cornerstone Fund. I have a pension account with the Cornerstone Fund as well. And I just learned this last week that the Cornerstone Fund was... um, A guy at the top ranks of the Cornerstone Fund was found guilty of embezzling... uh, from the Cornerstone Fund system by not sending taxes to the IRS the way they should be sent. And so instead of the money going to the IRS, he found a way to funnel about $12 million of it to himself over the last 20 years. And they just discovered this. Luckily, it doesn't affect our loans. It doesn't affect my pension. I'm not sure where they're getting the money to take care of it. Maybe they had some insurance to cover it. But the thing is, If your religion ever gives you permission to lie to other people, that's a bad religion. If your religion ever gives you the permission to act like you are doing the right thing while you're actually doing the wrong thing, that is a bad religion. If your religion ever allows you to look righteous while being terrible, that is a bad religion. Jesus gives one more. And this last one is perhaps the worst, at least the worst, I think, for us today. It's a religion that lets you lie to yourself. Jesus says, verse 29, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead then and complete what your ancestors started. Let me uh, try to unpack this a little bit. Jesus is saying to these people, so the Pharisees and the teachers of the law had taken it upon themselves to decorate and honor the memory of the prophets from days of old who were killed. Okay? And they thought that by doing that, by honoring the memory of the prophets who had been killed, they would prove that they are not the people who killed those prophets. They would prove that we are the ones who honor the memory of Zechariah and Malachi and these, others, these other Old Testament prophets. We honor them. And Jesus says, no, that's not the way it works. 
Let me ask you a question. To help us understand this, perhaps we could ask ourselves a diagnostic question. Why would anyone kill a prophet? Just think about that. What is the motivation for someone killing a prophet? Well, you would only ever kill a prophet if the prophet is saying something that doesn't line up with what you want to hear. Or if the prophet is saying something that doesn't line up with your preconceived ideas about what is right and wrong. If the prophet is somehow a threat to what you believe, then you might want to silence the prophet. And a lot of us are like, well, we would never do such a thing. We would never, we would never kill a, a prophet. And we don't even have prophets these days. Um, the prophets back then, like Jeremiah, he was telling the king that the king was going to be conquered and there was nothing he could do about it because Israel had been so disobedient. No king wants to hear that. So of course he's going to throw Jeremiah in a cistern and try to silence him. But no one's doing anything like that today. No one's speaking the words of God to us today in some sort of prophetic fashion. And we're not killing people, but if you think about it, we're treating a lot of people like prophets and silencing them because they're saying things that we don't want to hear, because they're saying things that are threatening to our preconceived ideas. Let's just be honest with ourselves. Most of our lives are built upon a foundation of confirmation bias. We learn one thing, we believe one thing, and so we layer upon it other things that support that thing. And we build for ourselves little towers of confirmation bias. And if anyone else says anything that threatens that, oh, the United States is actually founded on racism, or anything else that might threaten our, our statue, our, our confirmation bias silo, if anyone ever says anything to threaten that, our immediate instinct is to silence them in any way that we can. I was raised um, in, a, in a fairly traditional, conservative kind of uh, evangelical church culture. And I went to a school that was run by the church where, I, where my dad was the pastor. And in the school, I had a couple science professors who were following the science curriculum that was uh, purchased by the school from a Christian organization. And at the time, I remember in sixth grade having some very, very serious, detailed, scientific lessons about how we knew the earth was only 10,000 years old at maximum. And I learned all kinds of reasons. The sun is shrinking by a little bit every year, and if you extrapolate that into the past, then it would have been too big to have the earth even form, you know, and so it can't be, the earth can't be older than 10,000 years, or this, a whole bunch of other things. And I was, I was raised and I was encultured into this environment that basically said, when it comes to the age of the earth, you cannot trust science because all the scientists are atheists and they're wrong, but the Bible tells us the earth is 10,000 years old, and so you have to believe the earth is 10,000 years old, and all of the scientists who are communicating whatever it is they're trying to communicate to you are just non-Christian atheist people. You have to ignore them. You have to silence them. You can't pay attention to anything that they're saying. Well, it just so happened that I grew up. And as I grew up, I began to pay attention to two things. One, what does the Bible actually say? And two, what do the scientists actually say? And in that process, I learned, oh my goodness, no, the Bible never does say the earth is 10,000 years old, nor does anything in the Bible require me to believe the earth is 10,000 years old. And so that whole line of argument that I have to believe this because of religious reasons is gone. And anytime you can find a religious reason for your confirmation bias, oh, it makes it so much stronger, but that was gone. And so then I started paying attention, and all of a sudden, Little by little, I began to realize that the God who does beautiful things in 10,000 years is a smaller God than one who does beautiful things in 13.7 billion years. And between the two gods, I know I am following a God who is eternal. And so 13.7 versus 10,000 is meaningless. He's eternal. And the God who builds billions of stars across billions of years of time and has it all work perfectly in beautiful order is a God who astonishes me 
with his grandeur and majesty. And a God who snaps his fingers and 10,000 years later ends it all is one that is somehow smaller. And so here's the thing. The more I began to learn, the more I began to realize that my religion that requires me to think I know better than the scientists is gone. I no longer have to bear that burden of thinking that I somehow know better than them because for some reason I've got this extra religious knowledge. Here's the thing. I believe Jesus in that little statement about the the Pharisees is trying to tell them that any religion that lets you lie to yourself and make you feel better than the people who went before you or make you feel better than the other people around you, any religion that lets you lie to yourself is a bad religion. These Pharisees were exactly the same as all the other prophets, all the other people who killed the prophets before them. Do you know how Jesus knew? Because in a couple days they would kill him too. And so in a couple days, he knows he's going to die. And then after that, he knows they're going to kill Stephen as the first Christian martyr. They're going to stand by happily as they watch Herod kill James. They are going to be part of the system that then begins the persecution of Christians, out of which the Apostle Paul would rise up and say, I'm having no more of it. But Jesus, Jesus says, you think you're better than your ancestors, but you're not. And any religion that lets you think better of yourself than you ought to is a bad religion. Any religion that lets you lie to yourself is a bad religion. And so don't use religious leverage to help you feel superior to someone else. It's a terrible place to be. So, at the end of all this, if this religion is so bad, what are the consequences? And Jesus tells us, what are the results of a bad religion? Verse 33, Jesus says, you snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape from being condemned to hell? There you go. Jesus just said to a bunch of people around him, you are going to hell and you can't get out. How will you escape, he says to the Pharisees. Therefore, I am sending you prophets and sages and teachers, and some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly, I tell you, all this will come on this generation. Write it down. Practitioners of bad religion, go to hell. Jesus' words, not mine. And they repeat the evil, and join the guilt of all previous generations. Hopefully you've heard enough today that makes you really not want to practice bad religion. Hopefully you've heard enough today that really makes you want to get back to the Jesus religion of loving God and loving others. But I do want to leave you with some encouragement because none of us have done this perfectly. And the last words Jesus says in this chapter are both encouraging and scary. He says the encouraging part first. Let's see what he says. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I think all of us are in the same position as Jerusalem. People who have at one time or another quieted, canceled, sometimes even killed people that we didn't want to hear from anymore. I think all of us have fallen prey to some of these bad religion practices. But Jesus says this, to Jerusalem where the prophets were killed. He says to Jerusalem where the prophets were killed, I long to gather you into me. The amount of grace and love that God has for us is unfathomable. Jerusalem, the place where the prophets were killed, the place where Jesus himself would die. Jesus looks at that city and says, I long to gather you in. 
Jesus isn't about canceling the people who would cancel him. Jesus isn't about silencing the people who would silence him. Jesus is about welcoming even them. God will give us chance after chance. God will give us one chance after another after another, and he will keep giving us chances, but not forever. Jesus says to Jerusalem one of these days, one of these days your house will be left to you desolate, and you won't have anything to do with the truth of God until that day when Jesus comes back again. That's a scary place to be, to be a practitioner of bad religion and then to be absent from the fellowship with God outside of the kingdom of God until the day when Jesus comes back in judgment. That's a scary place to be. But don't leave here today with only that on your heart and your mind. Leave here today with the words of Jesus who says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets, how I long to gather you like a hen gathers her chicks. I don't know what your past has been and what your present has been. I don't know what your religion has been or anything along those lines. I don't know how well you have done any of the things that you know you're supposed to do or not. What I know is this. Jesus is giving you one more chance today. One more chance to turn to him, let him gather you in. And to say, Jesus, no longer am I going to be a practitioner of all these other things that let me lie to myself and others. Jesus, gather me in. I want to be a person who loves you, and I want to be a person who loves my neighbor. And I want to be part of a family that loves God, and a family that loves my neighbor. And if we get that right, then we're gathered closely to Jesus, and there's no better place to be. Let me pray for you. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And his plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.